This is Live from the Table, the official podcast of New York's world-famous Comedy Cellar, coming at you on Sirius XM 99, Raw Dog, and on the Laugh Button Podcast Network. This is Dan Natterman, co-host of Live from the Table, here with Noam Dorman, the, well, we're, I don't know if we're co-hosts or Noam's a host, and I'm the, I'm the sidekick, but originally it was we were co-hosts. Now I've sort of been downgraded. Anyway, Noam is here. We also have Perry L. Who downgraded you? Well, it's sort of, it's, it's not been stated, but it's, 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 I think it's, it's obvious. Uh, like Perry, my wife. Perry L. Ashenbrand, the producer, who's been upgraded from producer to on-air personality. We also have Danny Cohen. He's a regular uh, on the podcast and at the Comedy Cellar. We, we're waiting. Patrick Shark is going to be joining us uh, a little bit later. Um, it's been, it's been uh, an interesting week. Um, I, I don't know if we want to first just very quickly know him. what's the situation. It's May 19th. Wasn't this supposed to be the day that, that you're open at 100% or with vaccines or something? Something was supposed to happen today. Yeah, something was supposed to happen. Today was the day we're supposed to, allow, we're supposed to be allowed to open um, for vaccine-only shows, whatever it is. But uh, uh, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen because the government didn't get their shit together. We, nobody's told us how to do that, so... They, okay. have, they haven't issued any new guidance. So we're still at, what, 33% or 50 What is it now? Because I, Who knows? It's, it, it, they raised the restaurants to 75 I mean, if I, if I really tried to tell you, nobody would believe how, you know, opaque and, and how, how badly it administered all this is from the business point of view. We don't even really know what we're supposed to do. What are the actual requirements? It's... It's silly. But anyway, I mean, that's, that's, that's okay because everybody's vaccinated and people who are not vaccinated uh, do, are, are going in eyes wide open. So, you know, I'm, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really stressing it anymore. Is our friend Mustafa um, still stuck in Israel or was he able to get out? He, he's the guy that produces the Mint Comedy Show at the Cellar. Yeah, I was just texting. No, he's not back yet. He's still stuck in occupied Palestine. and. Um, uh, he's in the north, so apparently he's not, um, you know, where where uh, where it's dangerous. The missiles can't get there. But he sends me uh, really, you know, horrifying news stories of um, you know lynchings of Arabs. I don't know how many there have been, but even one uh, is, it's been more than one. But even one is very unsettling to know that you know the religious Jewish people are doing such things. I mean, in, in every other aspect of the conflict, you know, I'm, I'm team Israel, but that really bothering me. Um, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, I asked Periel if she wanted, but given all the events of this week, I asked Periel if she wanted to have on somebody to take the pro-Palestinian side. Lord knows there's no small number of such people in the comedy community, both the Arabic comedians and uh, non-Arabic comedians, even some Jewish comedians that take that position. But she did not want to do that, uh, Periel. Wow, she knows I can't be trusted to, to uh, why? No, because I felt like, I, I mean, I felt like I wanted to be able to have a conversation first <clears throat> without like fighting or like- so boring without the fighting to the <laughs> listener and for me. It's just boring. We need to fight. Well, I mean, you know, you can fight with me. I'm sure we disagree on a lot of stuff. And we can certainly have that show and that conversation. I think it's an important one to have. But, I mean, I wanted to say that, you know, I felt very, you know, disturbed because 
I've been, I, I feel like I'm getting fed this narrative that you can't be pro-Palestinian and also think that Israel has a right to exist. Um, and, you know, I got into, I never argue with people on Facebook, but I got into this ridiculous thing. I mean, really nasty with somebody who I'd been friends with for like 15 years. Um, I mean, it was really like pretty anti-Semitic what he said. And I don't know. It, it's, what did he say? He said that, um, he, he, I mean, he said exactly that, that like, you can't, you, that if you were, if you, you know, were pro-Israel or you believe that Israel has a right to exist, then you can't, you know, also be pro-Palestinian and that anytime anything happens, the Jews just roll another Holocaust video. Um, and that nobody <laughs> in Israel wants peace. And I was like, you know, everybody I fucking know in Israel wants peace. And like my entire family is like having like rockets rained down on them nonstop. And I feel like extremely empathetic and sympathetic to the Palestinian people. And that they, I think what's going on is horrible and that they're, you know, Hamas, they're at the mercy of this, you know, horrendous, you know, terrorist organization. And nobody should fucking live like that. But, you know, I don't think it's fair to turn people who don't think that Israel should be obliterated off the fucking map into like monsters. And I also don't think it's a fair and balanced assessment, frankly. What's not a fair and balanced assessment? To say that you can't believe that Israel has a right to exist um, without being anti-Palestinian. Well, I, yeah, well, you're, you're, I don't know what you meant by you, you were pro-Palestinian. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's getting ridiculous already. Yeah, it's, it's, I know. It's pretty exhausting, Noam. I don't have a lot to say anymore because it's just, it seems like it's never ending. It, yeah. it just doesn't, it's like a same old story. That's why like Parallel says she's very sympathetic towards the people. I don't know if I'm as sympathetic towards the Palestinian people after 60 years, after like three generations and they're still at it. They're still electing these people who are, I don't know. I feel like the majority of the people want to annihilate Israel. They don't want to, they don't want peace. They want the entire country. They want to get in there and they want Listen, to choose out. Let, 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 let's, let's, let's get a few things very straight here in terms of per Periel's, um, the way she, she words it always bothered me because pro-Palestinian is a meaningless thing to say. But, and the most likely interpretation of that is that you, you, you blame Israel for the, the, the dynamic in, is in, in the Middle East and not the Palestinians that you, but anyway, I think that all decent people have to say they, that they, they are sad to see any innocent person suffer, you know, and, and the average Palestinian citizen is, is, you know, through no, is through an accident of birth has a miserable life and, and little reason for, Optimism. I shouldn't say the average Palestinian, but many Palestinians uh, living in the, in the West Bank, at least, have a, have a miserable life and the little reason for optimism. And yeah, of course, we should all be on their side. 
Um, it gets. I don't. I don't want that on there. So well, it, where, where it gets dicier, where it does get dicier, is that you know, in, for instance, in, when uh, they elect Hamas as their leader in a, in a democratic, what seemed to be a free democratic election back whenever it was 15 years ago, at, at that point, there is some nexus between the leadership. It's not like it's just a dictatorship anymore, although it, it might be now. Although, look, Abbas was about to run for re-election in, in the West Bank, and, and it looked like Hamas might win there as well. So you're right, in a certain sense, there is a lot of evidence that would indicate that Hamas is the expression of the will it is. Of, of at least the majority, not a, certainly not the majority, all. The majority, the majority. And look, um, no, look at the rest of the world. You see people protesting, uh, pro-Palestinian, they're in the streets, screaming anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist all over the world, all over the world. There are so many. If that's how they feel and they're not in Gaza, of course you can assume that the people in Gaza feel the same way. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, protesting across the country, across the world about this problem. So of course, if they're protesting, you can only imagine how they feel. They probably are all, they, they, they are so pro-Hamas in, in Gaza in, in, in the, the Palestinians love Hamas, they're pro-Hamas, they're behind Hamas, and they want to destroy Israel. They do not want peace. And I don't care how many people say, you know, they want peace, they only want peace. They do not, I'm done. I, it's been 60 years. Sorry. <laughs> you, you build your own country. I, 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 country. I'm, not, I'm, not totally, I'm not totally comfortable with the, the, the way you're expressing that. Um, Sorry. Because no, I'm not. I'm not upset. I'm saying like I. I just don't want it to speak for me, because um, it, it's not really the way I feel. I but uh, it, it may be a distinction without a tremendous difference. But for instance, I know you know numerous Arabic friends I have who, who really wish that they had accepted a two-state solution, um, or that you know that the and and who speak about, you know, the Palestinian leadership being corrupt and not representing the people. And I mean, it's just, it's just a horrible situation, but, but without getting personal towards the people, which is it's just hard for me to talk that way. Um, there is certain bottom lines here that are very troubling. One bottom line is that what is a country supposed to do when missiles are fired at, indiscriminately at civilian targets? Right. I, I, I can't comprehend what our friends who are criticizing Israel, what AOC, what do they mean by stand with Palestinians now? It sounds like they're not saying, let's stand with the innocent Palestinian people who are victims of this awful Hamas regime that's sending missiles into Israel. They're not saying that. That would be a pro-Palestinian position, which I could respect. In other words, Let's stand with the people who are victims of Hamas on both sides, essentially. They seem to be saying, they seem to be taking the side of Hamas, right? That's, I mean, they really seem to be taking the side of Hamas. And, and Hamas is committing war crimes. That's why I'm saying what I'm saying. It's and Israel, Israel is, is entitled to defend itself, and, it, and it's not required to be proportionate. It is, it is required not to target civilians or whatever it is. And, and if if it turns out that some bombing, um, that it turns out actually they 
I, I can't believe they actually targeted civilians, but that they were not sufficiently careful to, to then, then Israel, you know, will not have clean hands. Not that in any war, any war ever, can I ever imagine that any side has ever had clean hands. But I will say that when America was, was um, attacked, like at 9-11, we killed civilians by the score in Afghanistan. Of course, not targeting them. And we, we occupied that country and we leveled it. And, 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 and um, that's what countries do when missiles come in. If, and I just don't. And what, but let me tell you what's even more troubling. Then I'll let my co-host talk. What I think is even more troubling is that, because that's all par for the course. We've seen this over and over and over again. What's really, really troubling, and which anybody who listens to the show or has to put up with me knows I've been saying for years already now, but it's all coming true, is that when the Jewish Jewish senator in the United States of America, maybe whoever lived, Chuck Schumer, while Israelis are in uh, uh, bomb shelters, is silent, silent. Moving to the left, of course he's going. He's be not there. moving to the left. That's not. That's he's not. He's to the left. He does. He's he he feels that within his party. It would be suicidal or risk suicide Correct. for him to say what I'm sure he believes is that Israel is, um, you know, well, what he wrote in 2014, he wrote, he wrote an article in 2014, there's no equivalence, no moral equivalence between Hamas and, um, and uh, Israel. And by the way, to make matters even worse, so he, somebody wrote a, a, had a post on Facebook, which was, criticizing Israel. And all I did, Danny, is I took Schumer's tweet about his, his own article from 2014, which said, there's no moral equivalence between Hamas and Israel. And I posted that as my reply to somebody else's comment on Facebook. And I, it got banned as, as, as uh, um, offending community standards. You were, you were in jail or you took it off immediately? No, the, the tweet got, I'll show you. Hello, Mr. Mr. Sharkey. You, you have an option. You can get it, you can take it off immediately and you don't get, you don't get thrown in jail. Or sometimes they jail you immediately. I don't know what, what happened. I'll, I'll show you. I'll, show, I'll put it up here. So, and you can tell me. So here's, here's the graphic. Hold on. Uh, oh, come wait, on. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. I just had it. What? No, wait, wait, wait. You're good. Hold on. While you're waiting, Dan, you want to introduce Patrick? So someone should How are you guys doing tonight? How do you do? I did. There were a couple. There were a couple of. Um... So here it is. Here, sorry. So just, just show everybody. So, because this is really, like, like this is really, is something, right? So here's the tweet. Hold on. This is, this is the. I mean, I would remind you that that, that on the radio, this is, you know. Well, I'm, I'm going to describe it. So this is the. This is what Facebook did. So you can see. Oh, come on. God, it's not me doing this. You know how much trouble I would get in? So here, here it is. So it says, this is my exact um, comment. Two, I wrote 2014, so they wouldn't think it was a recent thing. And I just put the link. You, see, you can see it's just the link. Right. And the link is to Schumer's tweet, which he says, wrote an op-ed today in the New York Post. There's no moral equivalence between Israel and Hamas. That is, that is what I wrote. And... Uh, it got um, it got taken down from Facebook as defined community standards. Well, I don't know. They have algorithms sometimes that are imprecise. Well, I, I I contested it, and they and they didn't like. I didn't. I haven't won yet. Algorithms, like like 
this is, I yes. don't know how they do it, but, but I think sometimes they look for key words, uh, you know. Well, let's, let's go through the words and imagine what it might be. Israel, Hamas, moral equivalency. There's no, there's no word of violence there. There's no in, in any case, uh, we have Patrick Sharkey with us, unless you want to continue on this. Well, I mean, I just, I mean, in all this talk about wokeness and cancel culture and, you know, like, wh- where is this going to go? You know, it's like, it, it is it is really troubling that, I mean, it really seems like you're just not supposed to say that kind of stuff anymore. And Schumer obviously thinks he's not supposed to say it anymore because he's, I mean, you, you should follow his Twitter feed. Every day is about um, student debt and this and that. And the one issue which you know he cares about and which he's always been associated about, and he's never shut his trap once in his, in his 30 years in the Senate, anytime there was an, a war in Israel, the Iran deal, anything that concerned Israel. This guy's been outspoken. He has not made a single comment while the Jews are in... in, in for many, for many years, years already. I mean, for this, a bunch of years already, by this the is, way. This is, right. this, is, no, this is a sea change. This is, yeah, hi, Patrick. Okay, tell us why crime is going up, Patrick. Well, let me introduce him. Introduce I'm, him. The, I'm the introduction guy. By the way, I did want to get to, uh, if we have time... Later, if we don't, we don't, uh, the death of uh, Paul Mooney and also Demi Lovato is now they. Patrick Sharkey. Professor. Hi, guys. I didn't sign up for the Israel-Hamas conversation. Okay, and, don't worry. Uh, we, we, know, we, we, we don't want to get you canceled. We won't put you on the spot. <laughs> Patrick Sharkey, professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, formerly chair of sociology at NYU, fine school, the Bobcats where he taught for 10 years before joining Princeton, the Tigers. That's right. That's right. Founder of AmericanViolence.org. I lost money in .orgs. They said invest in .coms. I made a mistake. I I think that was a... Who wrote that joke? Anyway, um, former director of Crime Lab New York and author of the the book, Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of Human Life and the Next War in Violence. Please welcome... Patrick Sharkey. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me here. So, Patrick, I gave you a long intro. What do we do about Hamas? Talk on this show. <laughs> the only time I get to talk on this show is when I do an intro. So, I got to really make, I got to drag it out. Because otherwise, well, I did. you know, in in that conversation you were just finishing up about um, uh, cancel culture or whatnot, it, you know, we just changed our name from the Woodrow Wilson School to the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, which is a, a major change. So I, I have to uh, remind everyone still calls it Woodrow Wilson. So, so you got that right. That's you, you usually get that wrong. You get that right. We call it the Van Wick Expressway. Now it's the Jackie Robinson Parkway, right? I was Van Wick a racist? No, no, but they just, I don't think it was a racist, but they wanted to honor Jackie Robinson. I got no problem with Jackie Robinson, but I grew up in, in the Van Wick era. Yeah, a lot of people are attached to Woodrow Wilson, but uh, this is, I think it's a, it, some of these changes are really important. It was an important change for Princeton, I think. I think it was a good change. Yeah. Well, Woodrow Wilson was a racist. We know that. But um, I don't know. I, like, I never, I don't, if, if I find, for instance, uh, we know that much more recently, Roald Dahl, the guy who wrote uh, Willy Wonka and all these, these, right? He was quite a racist, um, I mean, anti-Semite. He 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 said, you know, that he bl- essentially blamed the Jews for Hitler, uh, for Hitler's hate of them. And uh, w- would I object to, you know, roll doll, blah blah blah? No, I wouldn't. It's like, you know, what, 
it's history. It's history in its, in its flawedness and its richness and people being judged in their time and place. And, uh, you know, I, I wish, like, I, I'm a parent. You know, I, really want, I really want to talk about crime, but I'm a parent. And I have, I have children who are mixed. Um, but I, I, I would love for, like, one of their teachers to one day assign them instead of telling them, like they cram them down with exactly what to think, ask them to when they think about it. Like, what, is, what do you think you would do if you were born in the Old South in the, during the time of slavery? Ask my children, like, do you think you would have known that slavery is wrong? Do you think there's a chance you might've thought it was right, had slaves yourself? How do we judge people in that way? Do you think it's like, get my kids thinking about these issues rather than feeding them this simplistic notion that everybody born before 1970 was evil, you know, and it's just, it's so stupid. And, and it's just stupid. Anyway, go ahead. But yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to be tired of Woodrow Wilson. I'm not, obje- I'm not defending Woodrow Wilson, but where does it end? 14 points guy. Yeah. The 14 points guy. Yeah. The 14. It's, it's the 15th one. We don't talk about the 15th. <laughs> no, he, he was quite, he was, a, he, he, he was quite a racist. Was he unique racist to American presidents? I don't know. <laughs> he was uniquely racist. Um, yeah, he was. He, he, I mean, he resegregated the federal government. You know, he, he, was, he was distinctly racist. Um, he also did some great things internationally. So it is, you know, all these things are tough. In that case, I think it was definitely the right call. But, um, you know, this, this broader point is a challenging one. I loved Roald Dahl. He was my favorite author when I was a kid. That's a tough one to swallow. He was clearly anti-Semitic. Just, yeah. to, just yeah. to, uh, briefly before we get to violence, was Woodrow Wilson our most alliterative president? Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just coming in my head right now, and I can't think of a, another one, but there might well be. Um, okay. uh, Dan. Okay, so, so uh, I, I, I learned about uh, Patrick Sharkey because I, I was reading The Atlantic, which has an article, by the way, about how the AP was hiding Hamas. But anyway, I was reading The Atlantic, uh, and uh, the, he was an interview where... Ronald, Ronald Reagan. How did I even not... Oh, Ronald Reagan. And the, um, and the headline is, Why America's Great, Decl- Great Crime Decline is Over. Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover. All right, stop, Dan. This is one of the most vexing issues, why crime goes up and cri- crime goes down. I mean... John Haidt, of all people, who's a you know a brilliant intellectual, he once told me that he believed in this theory that lead paint was causing uh, had caused crime to go up, which I which I couldn't believe that, but just the notion that somebody as thorough a thinker as he thought it was credible just was another place on this spectrum of intellectually um, believable notions of why crime goes up and down that reasonable minds can differ about. So where do you come down? Why did crime go up? through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s? And why did it go down? And why is it going back up again? Like Bitcoin. Yeah, Yeah, so these are are tough questions. I think the the best answer that we have is um, when communities are abandoned, left on their own, uh, resources are extracted, the institutions of a community start to break down. and, And by that, I mean, you know, public housing complexes aren't maintained Parks and playgrounds aren't maintained. They become places that are unsafe. Residents start to retreat to their homes. Businesses start to close up shops. That kind of, those sets of processes, which took place from the 40s through the 70s as central cities lost jobs and 
poverty became more and more concentrated uh, and political influence went out to the suburbs and, and resources went out to the suburbs, money went out to the suburbs as well. Um, as all of that happened, uh, community, central city communities became vulnerable to violence. So it's a process that happens when a community empties out and becomes abandoned. Uh, it, it leaves a community more vulnerable. Um, so I think that's like the simplest explanation for uh, why violence rose from the 60s uh, all the way through the 1990s. Um, and then, you know, a different set of processes took hold in the, in the 90s. In the 90s, this is, this is the period where both Democrats and Republicans took crime, uh, took on crime as their issue and tried to, tried to outflank the others. Uh, and, and this is when Clinton ran on adding 100,000 officers to the street and, and really mass incarceration kicked into another gear. Um, and, you know, police went after gangs, shut down open air drug markets. Uh, the other thing that, that happened, though, which, which doesn't get a lot of credit, but uh, it is very clear if, in, the, in the data, in the empirical work, is that there was, there was really a mobilization where nonprofits and community, organi community organizations mobilized on a large scale. It's definitely happened in New York um, to, to march against violence, to reclaim parks and playgrounds, to make their community safer, to provide services for addiction and homelessness and mental illness. And so that was a central part of why violence fell as well. All of these things happened at the same place in can the I 90s. Ask you, can I ask you a few questions about that? Yeah, yeah sure. Because, and I'm not, I'm gonna say, I might sound argumentative, but I'm not, I really, I'm trying to understand this. And I grew up in, this, in the 60s and 70s in Manhattan. I, I mean, we yeah. were not allowed to walk above 104th Street. Um, I, everybody I know was mugged. Um, but a lot of what you're saying, the first thought is to me is, well, how do you know which is the causation here? Because obviously if crime rates spike, well, yeah, you're going to see the housing projects turn to shit. You're going to see people abandon the parks. You're going to see businesses leave. You're going to see poverty increase. Crime is, a, is, is a, almost certainly uh, going to cause all the things which, you, which you're saying caused the crime. And how do you, yeah, how do you know? So how do you, how do you know which way to come down on that? Or is there a little, does it, is it a, is it like a, cycle you know do they cause each other definitely there's some reciprocal uh effects there and it's a great question so you know what what we do is we develop methods that take advantage of natural experiments so you know in that last thing i said where i said um you know community organizations formed on a large scale and started to reclaim their neighborhoods and that reduced crime um the way that we came to that conclusion is by, by taking advantage of, of natural experiments that increased funding for the formation of nonprofits in different cities at different times. And, and so you're essentially taking advantage of an accident that led to more of these groups at a particular point in time in a particular place, and then looking at how that accident affected the level of violence. Um, so it's the use of natural experiments uh, to, to understand which way the causal arrow runs. Uh, and so that kind of analysis, all of my work is uh, geared toward identifying causal effects. So I, all the methods I use are not, you know, just pointing to what's going on and say, hey, this is causing this. They're, they're taking advantage of shocks in the world and then seeing how they affect but I'm, a, I'm a not given outcome. I, maybe I'm not following you. I can understand how you put money into a nonprofit and then that... Um, 
uh, might uh, impede or, you know, deter crime or might help the crime rate. But I don't understand how that's evidence of what caused the crime to go up to begin with. In other words, I mean, from what I saw as a little boy was just a, a, a cultural reality, which even as a young child, I had trouble understanding just a, 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 you know, and, and like, where does the, as, as um, single mothers increased and increased and increased as the age of mothers decreased and decreased and decreased. And I can remember going to PS 75. I've told the story, which was a um, pretty mixed. It's a pretty well-known mixed uh, elementary school on 95th, between 95th and 96th on West End Avenue. And I'd say we had 20%, maybe even more minority kids at the time. But they had the same resources, school resources, the same everything that I did. And yet, with the, with the exception of some black kids I was friends with who were like middle class black kids, their parents were, you know, professionals, a lawyer, whatever it is, who, who basically, I mean, I, I don't want to speak badly, but this is just the truth, who basically hung out with the white kids. But the, but the, the black kids who came from a more hard scrabble part of town, I mean they didn't do their work. They didn't behave in class. It was, it was a tremendous, tremendous, obvious difference. And so, when, so for the rest of my life, when anybody would say, well, the amount of money that's going into the schools, I'm like, yeah, but you know, I actually remember a school where we all got the same amount of money and the same resources. And it was clear to me, I can remember thinking this at nine, 10, 11 years old, that there was something really different about their parents and my parents, because my father would have killed me if he found out the way that these kids were behaving in class. So it's hard for me to accept that there is not something also cultural going on or was going on at that time, maybe exacerbated by dumb government policies, exacerbated by racism, descendants of slavery. I'm not, I'm not trying to take a, let's say a conservative position on the, the causation here, but I feel like that was going on. So sorry. Yeah. So the, I mean, in your answer, you, you said the kids from, the tougher part of town, you know, had had a, a different uh, mindset or different proclivity to to uh, get in trouble. You know, so that's that's a clear finding here that that one of the major differences, even with kids who go to the same schools or are from similar families, is that uh, black families are from overwhelmingly more disadvantaged neighborhoods, and that's kind of the legacy of our our policies that have generated segregation. They're only a few blocks away. They're only yeah, a few blocks yeah, so they're block to block. Um, there's this incredible resource. It's called the Opportunity Atlas uh, that um, Raj Chetty, an economist at Harvard, has put together uh, that shows. So it's tracking uh, people through through the tax system, and it shows the probability of, of uh, them ending up in the prison system at, at uh, a given point in time uh, in the 2010s. And it's really remarkable, just a few blocks away uh, there, you know, within LA or within New York, there are these dramatically different levels of, uh, in, in involvement with the criminal justice system. Um, and, and it's really like the, the patterns of investment and, and disinvestment are that fine grain that it's, it's really, um, block to block, uh, and, and the segregation is really block to block, but, you know, to get, to get back to your point there, there is so like I, I would not want to rule out uh, behavior and, and, and culture as part of, of these explanations. There's 
that what really got me into sociology was reading this book that William Julius Wilson wrote uh, called The Truly Disadvantaged. Um, that has become this very famous book um, because what he did is he took all the changes that were happening in the 50s and 60s, like the, the movement of manufacturing jobs out of central cities, you know, which happened on a large scale, the resulting joblessness, the resulting dependence on the welfare system, the breakdown of two family parent, uh, uh, two, the two parent family structure, um, and 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 the uh, improvements in civil rights, which allowed middle class and, and upper income black families to leave the traditional ghetto, and he put together all these forces and and documented how what they resulted in was a concentration of poverty in the communities left behind and a resulting switch in the political influence of, of which communities had political influence, which did not, which had resources uh, and, and, and which did not, which had kind of the core institutions like churches, schools. Um, can, you know, we, uh, can we stop for a second and focus on that? Yeah, yeah. Because you just brought something up, which I first heard from black friends and I, it, always, it never gets spoken about in, uh, that much, and I think it's because people on both sides are a little uncomfortable with it, but the argument goes, you correct me if I'm wrong, that with the end of Jim Crow and with the end of segregation, successful and educated black people moved out of the neighborhoods because they were now finally able to, leaving a dearth of role models and, you know, uh, community leaders within these communities and rudderless, essentially, these, these communities deteriorated. It was this kind of like law of, ultimate law of unintended consequences of desegregation. And I can see why that people, are, it's awkward to talk about that, but you put some stock in that theory. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as as the the as poverty became more concentrated, and that happened because the middle class started to move out on on a large scale, and like that's that's rational. It, it's not it's not because they didn't want to live in black communities. It's because they didn't want to live in communities that were the objects of of long term disinvestment and and abandon. You know, not just that you that, start making money and you can you buy a nicer house, you get to a right. nice, but that's normal, right? Yeah. And so the, it's, it's not just that they, you know, the role models left, but also that, you know, those churches start to, are, are now empty on, you know, every weekend, um, you know, people empty out those, those parks are no longer being maintained. Uh, and, and as violence starts to emerge, it does create this cycle where then, then people retreat from public space uh, and they're less likely to go out and if they can get out of the neighborhood, they will. Uh, and, and, you know, I would never want to raise my kid in a violent neighborhood, you know, so I, I, it, it's, it's very rational um, because of the way that we have invested and disinvested in, in communities. Uh, it's very rational for uh, people to want to leave uh, uh, neighborhoods of concentrated poverty um, and segregated neighborhoods. And, and so those processes definitely happen. Um, it led to kind of the breakdown of, of, of core institutions uh, in central city communities, and then they became vulnerable to violence. And, and, you know, as you mentioned before, this is reciprocal. So when a community becomes violent, uh, it, it destroys the community and, and it leads business owners to want to leave. It leads teachers to want to leave. It leads families to want to leave. 
um, and results in more depopulation, uh, um, the, the additional breakdown uh, of, of kind of the core institutions of community life. And, and so it is this reciprocal process. Also, there's a, there's a, there's a concept of, core, of critical mass. You know, it's like a good analogy in a lot of things. Like at, at some point, you have a couple bad kids. It, it, it's, it's not the end of the world. But at, at some point, magical point, when it, it gets so bad, that then it just, everything just falls apart. And then it, cause you're raised by your peers as well. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and when, when all the peers or so many of the peers are up to, or, you know, I don't want to say they're hard, hardened criminals, but just like, you know, day to day, not going to school, vandalizing. I mean, you, you'd be shocked to know like how ordinary it was for pretty nice kids to mug people back in, in the 70s. That's one of the things I remember. Like, I remember one of the guys I went to school with. He was all right, you know? Like, he was an all right guy. And then he was mugging people on the way home <laughs> because he, he was so young, he didn't even really understand how awful what he was doing was. It was just something he learned to do. He grew yep. up around it, you know? When I joined Little League, because the kids were doing it. And I, my batting average was literally zero. <laughs> so, I told my father, don't come to the game. <laughs> you feel like Manhattan is headed in that direction now that we had a lot of people leaving. And now that sort of the cops are sort of like the police. They're sort of like, sort of like fading away. They're not around. They're not, they're not really what they were a few years back. Um, you know, economy, uh, stores closing. Do you feel like New York, Manhattan is headed in that direction again? Um, I don't, but I'm worried about it. Uh, you know, I think, I think last year, last year wasn't sufficient to be very worried. Um, you know, the level of violence last year was, was uh, pretty shocking. Uh, you know, shootings almost doubled. Um, and, and so, when that happens, uh, and if people make the decision that this is a place that's going downhill, then yeah, some of the changes that we saw will will uh, you know there will be a possibility that they'll become permanent. I don't I don't I don't think it's happening right now. You know I think uh, New York City has as much criticism as the government gets. It has a much more effective uh, city government uh, than than most uh, big cities and. And, you know, the, the NYPD, uh, I, I, you know, my, my opinion is they did a pretty awful uh, job last year uh, and really lost a lot of trust. Um, but that said, it is they are um, really trying to regroup and get back. What, what people forget is that the NYPD was moving in a direction of lighter touch policing um, all the way from 2014 through 2019, like there were tangible steps toward changing the way that they were doing their job and violence kept falling, you know, violence fell to, there were less than 300 murders in 2018. So, you know, as they ended the practice of stop, question, or frisk, violence kept falling as they, as more and more people came out of the jail system, violence kept falling. So it, you know, it's easy to forget the progress that, was was happening because last year was such a disaster. But I do think, um, or at least I'm hopeful that last year was a bit of an aberration. So I have a couple of questions. First of all, I, you want to say something, Dan? Well, you know, I, I, I actually haven't spoken about this to many people, but I was victim of an assault a week ago. Uh, I say assault in the legal sense of the term because nobody hit me, but I was in the subway transferring from the D to the Q or so, whatever it was. 
But anyway, that, there was a long corridor underground and I'm, I'm this guy coming toward me and he's like coming toward me a little close, like he's not giving me like, like uh, adequate personal space as he's coming toward me. And I suppose I, maybe I should have walked to the other side. But anyway, and he, he puts up his fist and he goes like this and he like feigns punching me. He like punches halfway, like a check swing in baseball, like, like that. And then he walked and I cowered, like, like a coward. I cowered and I got like this with my hands in front of my face. And then he walked on. Um, so it was very unsettling. And, you know, the, I mean, the worst part of it is I felt emasculated. <laughs> Did because he? what should I have? Because I know, first of all, he wouldn't have done that to Godfrey or Doug Davidoff or Ben Bailey. He wouldn't have done. He picked the weakest guy that he, that he felt comfortable doing it with. And I proved him right. You know, because Dove probably would have Dove probably would have squared off and punched him in the face. But but those interactions destroy a city. Uh, you know, I, like it. I mean, it's it's kind of you know. I know you can laugh at it looking back, but uh, it, it, when we were in our last years in Manhattan, we moved about two years ago. You know, my son was taking the subway to Queens to soccer practice with his friend on his own. You know, and and. Um, and we were, we felt fine about it. Uh, and, and, you know, so, so when a city starts to turn, when the subway system starts to turn and we start to say, Hey, we're not sending our kid out to Queens anymore. Um, then the city that changes, then you start to think, Oh, maybe we should move out somewhere else. You know, so, so those, those kinds of interactions and the whole reason I started studying violence is, is because of the research I was doing that showed, you know, Noam, as you were talking about, uh, when you were a kid going through this, like incidents of violence reverberate around entire communities. They affect not just, you know, how scared we are walking down the street, but they affect our cognitive functioning. They affect our sleep patterns. And so all of the empirical work I've been doing for the past 10 years it has been just showing, uh, and I've been astounded by the impact, but the impact of, of living in a violent community is so much worse than I ever imagined. And, it, and you can see it in the data. Um, and, it's, and, and so, you know, it, it, it really undermines community life. Um, and, and as a city becomes more violent, it, it puts the trajectory of that city at risk. Uh, it's why I've, I've come to think of violence as the fundamental challenge of cities because if public spaces are unsafe then city life just starts to break down you know, so, here's the irony of it he looked at me he probably thought landlord and doug davidoff is a landlord and he wouldn't have done that to doug davidoff <laughs> all right go on um so okay so in no particular order one of the things i i thought of when you were when you're talking about the you know uh, the ups and downs is like like the economy I'm never quite sure how soon you're supposed to see the results of a change in policy. So like things don't turn on a dime. They stopped stop and frisk as, as it was pretty clear they should have, especially, you know, when we all saw the, the stats, how they had just done it more and more and more as there were fewer and fewer crimes to find. Right. Yeah. So they stopped that. And then, and then for, for then crime continues to decline. You say, you see, was I say, well, wait a second, you know, you don't just because they stopped it doesn't mean that there wasn't already a trend. And then it turns the bend, and and it's like, well, maybe it actually takes a while before people get a sense that there's a new risk of getting caught now. And there's, like I said, there's more. And I saw, oh my God, he's carrying a gun, and 
Look at that. He didn't get caught. Yeah, and I'm, it's getting a little more safe here. Let me spread my wings a little bit. And then it, it builds on itself. And then maybe three years later, then that's when you really see the result of having discontinued stop and frisk. But this is not an argument to continue stop and frisk. It's just an argument. It's like it's not so easy to read the data because you don't know when the results, what they're tied to. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's not crazy. That I, You know, the, the, the one counter is – you know, this was such a dramatic change uh, in in policing tactics where he went from 700,000 stops. And those are just the ones that they reported, you know, um, 700,000 to, you know, I think they're 13,000 or so reported. Uh, you know, they basically ended that practice, which was the dominant practice of, of the NYPD uh, under Bloomberg. Um, so, you know, it was a dramatic enough shift that and it was six years ago you know it, it was like it, it uh this this ended in 2013 2014 um and went basically down to zero um and crime kept falling for several years after so you know i think your point is right that like this stuff is much more complex than um than any summary that just looks at the trend and stop and frisk and and says see we you know we didn't need to do this uh, it has no effect on violence we don't know that uh with certainty um but it it does seem like enough of a change sustained over a long enough period um you know that at least the initial fears when ray kelly the former uh, police chief said that the city is going to explode if you if you end this practice he was clearly wrong Okay, yeah, Bloomberg was clearly wrong. Um, and I think we can say that safely. Yeah, they, they underestimate the fact that the norms develop, habits develop. People get used to living crime without committing crime and crime free. Uh, they get used to that. And they don't just, it's not like they're saying, checking the, the stats, oh, the cops are stopped, let's, let's go right back to it. it, it, it it's, they, people develop habits, cultures yep. develop that way. And it doesn't turn on a dime. And so, you know, it's just, it's always been hard for me to believe everybody's so extreme on these issues, right? People say stop and frisk doesn't work or stop and frisk was everything. When I'm, I tend to believe it did work. I, um, it's, it's logical to me that uh, you talk about William Julius Wilson, James Q. Wilson, you know, the, the broken windows theory, it all made sense to me. You, you pick people up for smaller crimes and, they leave their guns at home and they try to keep their noses clean and some of them go to jail. And yeah, of course that's going to decrease crime. Uh, you know, it, it, I think, I think both sides, there's a sweet spot there. I think both yeah. sides are correct. It's overdone, but it's, it's absurd. To, people, you would, some crime experts would have you believe none of this has to do with cops. Like you, you can control the crime rate. You don't defund the police, right? What is defund the police other than like a mass delusion that the cops are not responsible for keeping a cork in crime, but they have to be. Yeah. One of, one of the findings that, um, you know, is, is, uh, I get a lot of flack for saying out loud, but it's one of the strongest findings in criminology is that more police on the street leads to less crime. Uh, you know, and we have really strong causal evidence, uh, about that. You know, the important point then is to go one step further and say, okay, you know, we know that more policing is going to uh, reduce violence or is at least going to have some impact on violence. But the other side of the equation is 
what is the harm generated from that? You know, and so there's been great work. There's there's a scholar named Abigail Sewell um, and uh, another uh, guy named Desmond Ang who have done this really uh, impressive work on the harm that's done by uh, aggressive policing, uh, stop and frisk, uh, but also the harm uh, from police shootings um, and the tangible effect that that has on young people's lives, how they're doing in school, uh, their mental health. Uh, and it's real, you know, those, those effects are, are real. The effects of mass incarceration are only now beginning to be understood because now it's, it's that next generation who have had a parent incarcerated that we're seeing the impact on, on those kids, you know? So it's, I, I, I think you have to be honest. You have to be intellectually honest about the evidence that suggests that some things that we're uncomfortable with, like policing are actually reducing uh, violence. But then you also have to have to hear people when they say, well, you know, the anger that it's generating, the resentment, the estrangement from the city, um, and then the tangible harm on on young people in particular, that's also very real. So, you, you know, when I look at these, I kind of try to take in all this evidence, look at it as honestly as possible, um, and then think about what models might be possible to reduce violence without some of the harm that's been generated by violent policing, by mass incarceration and intensive surveillance. Patrick, um, go ahead, Dan. Uh, yeah, Patrick, should I carry a firearm? I wouldn't. I don't. Um, that's going to make you a lot more, uh, you know, uh, likely to die. <laughs> um, now, firearms, you know, I think the best evidence tells us that firearms increase the probability of suicide substantially. Um, and <laughs> don't less, carry firearm, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> there's less evidence. Uh, you know, the evidence is not quite as strong as that on firearms and, and murder, but there's pretty strong uh, correlation there that, you know, places with more firearms uh, have more murders. Police are more likely to get shot. Police are more likely to shoot people. So, you know, if, if folks are carrying around guns, uh, everybody is less safe. Right, so, uh, and, and, and of course, race is such a difficult layer on this because even, in, in my opinion, even um, stop and frisk, if I could imagine an all-white community and all-white cops that thought that stop and frisk uh, helped, I think they would accept it even knowing all the downsides of it. I, it, I think it is the, the, it's, it's the, the racial aspect which makes it intolerable to us, and, and, I don't, not, and, and rightfully so. But it's like in my neighborhood, if they're like, if was, I live in Westchester. I think the people say, well, yeah, you look good. Let them, let them, let them ask those kids what they're doing out there at, at night and let them, let them frisk those kids. We don't need kids walking around with weapons around this neighborhood, you know? Like, like we'd all accept that. It's quite different when it's the white cop coming in there and to, the, to the black kid. It's, ju it's just different. And we need to accept that human reality. Anyway, uh, um, because... You know, Bloomberg, I, I, I fault Bloomberg. I think in his mind, he felt, and I think he, with some justification, he said, listen, yeah, I know, but I'm saving lives. I'm saving black lives. Don't they see I'm saving black lives? And what's more important than saving a life? And in one sense, we all agree, well, there's nothing more important than saving a life. But actually, 
That's not really true, is it? Actually, uh, having uh, a community that doesn't feel humiliated right. is um, very, very important. It might even be worth losing some lives if you actually examine what the democratic consensus, you know, they might not say that out loud, but their behavior and their voting and the things they ask for will indicate that, yeah, you know, we'd rather, I know we're going to lose some lives, but we can't live like this. We just, the, the idea of white cops pulling our kids over, we just can't live that way. So, you know, you agree with that? It's very, it's very difficult stuff. It is really difficult. And I think the important part that, that you mentioned at the end is incorporating harm into the equation. You know, what, like, and, and you know, we can't completely quantify uh, just the feeling of not being a full citizen uh, or the feeling of being humiliated. Um, but we can quantify things like the effect of being stopped on kids' performance in school, you know, and that's where some of the research is actually really helpful. I think of it as, as very helpful because it, it incorporates harm into the equation uh, and makes you can think about, you know, not just what the impacts are on violence, but also what the impacts are on on uh, young people. Um, and, you know, the other thing I'd say is that there are, okay, so the the most, you know, the typical example of a police officer stopping a kid is probably a respectful interaction or not a horrible interaction. The worst cases are difficult to even listen to. Um, there, there was this one article in the nation of a kid who recorded uh, a stop and it was just the audio. Uh, his name was Alvin. He was in Harlem. There, you could still you can you watch the video. It's it's called stopped and frisked for being a fucking mutt, something like that. Um, and if you listen to that audio, the anger that you feel if you have kids, you know, if I could just imagine my kid being treated that way for walking down the street, yeah. uh, and and just being. Yeah, just just being abused in the way that that child was like, it's just tough to fathom. Um, and so if that ever happened, I would be as angry as anyone is, uh, you know, around policing and stop question for us. Um, it, it is it's difficult to listen to. I, I agree with you totally. And Megan McArdle made a good point one time. She said these conservatives, you know, they can't they can't seem to get this get understand it but boy do they understand it when somebody asks them to put on a mask like you know, then they then all of a sudden they're furious at this yeah. police state right but uh they, they have no sympathy for you know young black kids being pulled over and yet and yet there's a part of me that says you know it takes a tough man to make a tender chicken and and that you know a, a mayor might have to um keep order and so like he he, he I don't know. It's very difficult for a mayor to figure out the, the, the right spot because there is something also to the idea that, well, listen, the people don't realize, but, you know, we just can't let people like look what's happening in Chicago. Like yeah. we can't we can't have that, even if it right. meant whatever, whatever it meant in New York. We just can't have that. Right. But let me give you an example. Just you'll enjoy it of, of Mayor Bloomberg and how oblivious he was. Um, this is what he said in uh, one of his audio tapes. He says, so one of the unintended consequences is people say, oh, my God, you're arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in minority neighborhoods. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. So, so essentially he's saying, yeah, we all these black kids for a crime that we actually don't give a shit about. <laughs> 
having marijuana and we traumatize them and we might even change the trajectory of their lives and arrest them and all, all this shit that they go through. But you know, we, we got to do it with no literally oblivious to what he's saying. You know, yeah. I like Mayor Bloomberg, but Jesus Christ, if, that, if that's not an example of what they call systemic racism, I don't know mm-hmm. what is. I mean, you know, I, I, it's, a, it's a great point. So I did a study way back with a student named Joanna Lacoe, uh, where we looked at exactly this question. We looked at stop question frisk data. And the idea was to take Bloomberg at his word and say, okay, he's saying that this is happening because of a, a crime, you know. And, and so what we did is we looked at what happens after a homicide in, in neighborhoods across the city. So, you know, it was the, the idea was to say, okay, this is a major crime. We know police activity is going to ramp up after a homicide. So what happens in different kind of communities? And what we found is that so black neighborhoods always had more, uh, way more stops. We know that um, after a homicide, the spike in police stops that occurred after a homicide was about twice as high in black neighborhoods as it was in any other uh, neighborhood with any other racial and ethnic composition. And, and so the conclusion, we called it life in a crime scene because the conclusion was essentially when when there is this traumatic event, you know, someone gets shot, someone gets killed in your neighborhood. If you're black and you live in New York City, all of a sudden you're walking through a crime scene and, and you are a, a suspect, whether, you know, no matter who you are in that community, you are a suspect. So you're not being given, you know, uh, um, counseling. You're not being, you know, uh, getting extra attention to figure out if you're doing okay after this major shock, you're now much more likely to be stopped uh, on the street. And, and so it's just a, a different, uh, you know, understanding of how um, the police interact with different communities. And, and that study made it so clear that, that, that the city just operates differently uh, in different areas, in different uh, neighborhoods. Um, and we all knew that. But when I saw those spikes, I, I kind of thought, okay, this, this is ridiculous. This is a, a colony within the city, to use the term that um, Chris Hayes used in, in his book. Um, it's, it's very real. It's very real in New York. Last question that I have, unless somebody else has one. So one of the things I'm trying to understand, I, I probably should have looked it up, maybe some data on it, but is crime that's ticking up, is it the same as it used to be? Or my, my common sense tells me that it's going to be more black-on-black or race-on-race crime than it was for the following reason. Nobody carries cash anymore. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the main fear that I used to have walking the street was that somebody would assume, and everybody, you know, would assume I had a lot of money. Everybody assumed the, the, the gas station had money, the, the taxi had money. The fact is nobody carries more than $15, $20 now. And so that's got to affect the temptation to commit that kind of crime is that crime. I don't think it can come back the way it used to be. So when I see you hear all this violent crime is ticking up, that sounds more to me like within a neighborhood, people who know each other, not for money. Yeah. So last year, overall crime didn't rise in New York gun, gun crime uh, skyrocketed, but other forms of property crime, uh, even sexual assault didn't, didn't rise. It was limited to gun violence. Uh, so your instinct is, is right there, at least as, as applied to last year. And it's kind of a mystery 
Um, you know, I, I think we're, we're gathering a lot of data to try to figure out exactly what happened last year and testing a lot of hypotheses. But if anybody tells you they know exactly what happened last year, you know, they're, they're speculating. Um, they're lying or they're speculating because it, it's, it's going to take uh, a good amount of time and research to, to get better answers as to what happened. But your instinct is right in the sense that it was all gun violence. Uh, it was all shootings. There was no increase. In fact, overall crime dropped, I think, slightly in, in New York. Uh, but shootings, uh, both non-fatal and fatal shootings, skyrocketed. Why is there so much violence in Chicago? Chicago is in really tough shape. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I did a, I did a 60 year analysis of, of murder in Chicago, uh, just a couple of weeks ago to try to figure out or just get some handle. Um, uh, and I didn't get a great handle except to say that, um, I got an answer for you. You're not going to like it. Deep right, dish pizza. What is it? I didn't catch it. Dish pizza. It's pizza. Wrong, everybody up. <laughs> the <laughs> All right, Dan. So go ahead. I haven't tested that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, well, I mean, the short version is it's it is a, um, a a change that's almost entirely restricted to very low income segregated neighborhoods. Um, the murder rate is almost as high as it's been in the past sixty years uh, in Chicago. Um, and, you know, so Chicago actually had a huge crime drop from the 1990s uh, all the way through 2014 or so, where the murder rate dropped in half. Um, but then since that point, uh, it may have been a little bit before 2014, but, but uh, since that point, uh, violence has really skyrocketed. And so violence doesn't have near close to the highest murder rate in the country, just, just to be clear. St. Louis and, and a bunch of other cities have much higher rates of violence. Chicago just has the most murders, the, you know, the raw number, the absolute number. Uh, they have the, the most in the country. But the real worrisome part is that their their level of violence is, is back up to a point where it's almost as high as, as it's ever been. Um, and, you know, this is what happens when residents, uh, local organizations, police and the city government have zero trust for each other. Um, and And... You know, it, it works in multiple ways. The police step back from their role in getting actively involved with incidents. Residents step back and stop cooperating, stop talking with police, stop calling uh, for, for the police to come when there's a problem, when there's an altercation. And, and so when you have this real deep distrust uh, and when police are not seen as a legitimate institution, um, that that then leads to a pattern where you can have a, a surge of violence. And I think that's a big part of what happened in lots of cities last year, uh, you know, New York being one of them. We also have a no bail reform law that was passed and people could just knock you out. And as long as they don't hurt you, they'll be fine. They just don't go to jail. They don't get arrested. Yeah, so there's been a lot of violence on, on the subways. People just if they don't like something about you or for whatever reason, they can just go up to you and just knock you out. There's a fist right in your face. They keep walking and that's the end of that. There's been a lot of that. Yeah. 
Yeah. I like the idea of bail reform laws, actually. I always did, but, uh, you know... It, it, not, it, for uh, violence, not for violence, not for violence, though. I mean, bail uh, reform is really important, I think, but not for if you're, like, stabbing people. Look, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a fiction, but we, you know, we try as much as we can to assume that just because you're arrested, you're not guilty. And putting somebody in jail, and it can be for a long period of time when they can't meet bail or whatever it is, and what happens to them in jail, and you can't see it outside... Outside, at least I can't see it outside of the horrors that happen to people in jail. So, so all of that, if we could, you know, not lock people up or, you know, without bail or, you know, that would be better. But all that to say that that's principle, but everything has to bend in, in if reality just shows you it just, it's not workable. And if, you know, you're going to have crime skyrocketing without bail laws, and I guess we have to, have, you know, res- then I guess I'm in favor of bail, but. Oh, can we, uh, is it possible to say a word? Uh, yes, yes. A comedy podcast about Paul Mooney, who died. I well, believe. let me just say, Mr. Sharky, uh, um, by the way, there was, a, there was a movie about crime with Burt Reynolds called Sharky's Machine. You, you, Sharky's you, Machine, yeah, no relation. No relation. Uh, you're welcome <laughs> to say, but you're, you're an awesome guest. We should have him on again um, uh, uh-huh. next time we have to talk about crime. Too. He really wants to come to the cellar. Oh, are you are you in New York City still? I thought you said you left New York. Are you still in New York? I'm in I'm in Princeton, but uh, I was in I was begging for tickets last weekend, and I was told I couldn't go anywhere near the club. Were, but, you, uh, were, is that true? You knew you were coming on the show. Why did you call Marielle? I did. She said I couldn't get in. No way. You have to come on the show first. Are you crazy? I told him. To- uh, she was great. She was great. She, we had already, we, I emailed late and then I, um, and we had already, uh, decided we were going to do something else, but I love going in there. Anytime I'm, I'm going no, I, in. I, yeah. I, actually, uh, I have, I have some really interesting people coming down. I don't want to say the names on the air, but some people who write for the Atlantic, uh, some friends of mine are coming down this Friday night. Um, if you're around on Friday night, you, you would really, uh, have a, uh, enjoy the conversation. Look at that- how, look at how, Quick he was to assume that I actually told you that you couldn't come. No, I said, I said, scandalous. I said that can't be true, is what I said. Oh, you got furious. I saw Patrick. If you're you're a comedy fan, go ahead, Dan. You're a comedy fan. Do you are you familiar with the work of Mr. Paul Mooney at all? He's somebody, by the way. Pardon? I saw him all day today. Yeah. And by the way, Dan, I saw you at the cellar years ago. Did you? Well, I'm even better. But uh, Paul Mooney, uh, did he ever work at the cellar, uh, Noam? I, I never saw him there, but maybe he was there once or twice. I, I don't think so. He might, maybe once or twice years ago, but no, I don't. You know, oh, he was 79, which I had no idea was that wow. old. But anyway, Perry, you said you had some stuff to say about him. I- well, I feel like Paul Mooney was, you know, like a Richard Pryor type level genius. And he was so so brilliant and so scathing and so political. And I think that, um, you know, everybody who is, you know, even tangentially associated with comedy, I think recognizes that, but I think he never really made it to like, you know, that level of, um, stardom. Yeah. Not, not fame because I think he did, he did make it to that level of fame, but to be like, um, no, he didn't make that level of fame. He's not, no, he's he, didn't, not. he didn't make it to that level. Of fame. But he should have because he was, I mean, amongst anyone who knows anything about. Right. But that's show business. You know, anybody can either a lot of greats that just don't make it start up. And he was great. He was amazing at what he did. 
he was really special. It's yeah. um, it was it's a big, big love. Why? I guess he just never. Like, why didn't he work the cellar? Was he? Is he not New York? Was he not New York based? I don't think he lived in New York. No. I, I used to see him a lot in New York. I would run into him at Starbucks. I saw him a few times. I caught up with him a few times. He was always around. I, I guess he just never stopped. I guess he just never stopped by. I guess he just never stopped by for whatever reason. He's, I mean, his work is incredible. Yeah. I mean, I don't have much to say. I'm not, I'm not proud to say it, but I don't know much about comedy outside what happens at the comedy cellar. It's true. <laughs> Does anybody um, have any thoughts about Demi Lovato? Is now a they. She is a they. Her pronouns are they and them. So what does that mean? She's trans or she just changed her pronouns? Uh, um, I believe, uh, let me just look this up. Non-binary. She's non-binary, I believe. Demi Lovato says... We were talking about crime. We can get away with that, but don't get this wrong, Dan. <laughs> the, the, the CNN headline says, I, I mean, I, you know, it's not politically correct. to. to I, I have to say, I, 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 I kind of laughed when I read the headline. It says, that Demi Lovato says they are non-binary. Yeah, that's what, I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I could like not help I let out a chuckle when I read that headline. Why is that funny? That is funny. <laughs> no, but what? Don't, 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 Sharky's here, leave him alone. <laughs> uh, um, You're telling me that's not funny? Demi Lovato no, says. No, but he can't, he's got, he's got a career to worry about. He can't get targeted by your dumb. Uh, 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 no, I'm here to tell me that's not funny. You guys started with uh, Palestine and Israel and ended with Demi Lovato. This is, yeah, this, this is not my uh, wheelhouse. Dan, this is my opinion. I, and I speak, I think I speak for everybody, but Danny called All due respect, but funny is funny. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously there's something funny about seeing the, like for anybody who's, you know, didn't grow up with this, these the sentences are kind of funny because they seem so unnatural because they is a plural word. Plural. You know, and, it's used in so many different situations as singular, number one, number two. Not, not in that situation. You guys one, just one cannot. But I, but I understand the language changes. I'm just saying. It's also funny because CNN is just immediately in lockstep with with the with the language or people have been feeling like this forever and now they have the language that actually matches how they feel that's fine yeah but you know, okay first of all funny. go ahead dan that's fine but it's still funny to me when i read that headline but why is it funny all right <laughs> uh listen i i will use danny cohen danny cohen what do you say you're, you're in the lgbt community yeah, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it's just, it's it's pretty complicated. And, um, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I don't have to deal with any of that. Look, th th like this, but let's take a good example. This Latin, Latin X. So you, you read Latin X everywhere, everybody, CNN type and, every, and any, uh, any, certainly any paper that Patrick Sharkey would ever turn anywhere turn, has to say Latin X, right? But we know from polls that it's something like 2% of actually Latino people want to use this word. So it's, it's, it's this elitist imposition, right? I don't know if non-binary people, like there's nothing offensive about saying she's non-binary, meaning referring to the sex of somebody and saying non-binary, which refers to the 
what they identify as. So like you could you could have kept it, but I'm not I'm not I'm not beef with it. I'll say whatever I'm supposed to say. I want to be respectful. God forbid. I you know I don't want to not planting a flag or you know you can't fight city hall, but I'm just not sure with the, with the trans people I know as you and you know some of them they're way more easygoing about these words than you would think they would be based on how the headlines seem to say they're so important. That's all I'm saying. So I will grant you that. And I know that you have several trans friends and I have heard them say that, but I think that also they are of an older generation and they didn't have access to that language, number one. Yeah, what I'm saying is this, Perry. When you refer to a baby born as he, you're not making any assumption about what he will grow up to be in terms of his, his look, how he identifies. You're referring to his, his biological gender. So to me, saying he is non-binary or she is non-binary is not, uh, you know, it doesn't, is not, doesn't contradict logic to me. Well, to you it doesn't, but to somebody who's non-binary, they have spent their entire lives in many cases feeling that those words are not accurate to how they feel as a human being. And yeah. so that language is very important to them. All right, that's fine. But you understand it, Noam and I are old enough to remember when Trans America was a bank. Now, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will tell you this. There is this feeling like, you know how people always say, I'm, I need to make a change of, a change of, move to another city or change my job that that's going to bring me happiness right like and then they do it and they realize actually they feel the same as everything if they could just change the words that's going to make the if i could just change my gender and and but somebody transgender said to me the other night she said you know one of the disappointments that she had was that she thought that when she finally did change that all the aspects of of sadness in her life depression like she thought that this was going to be like that everything was going to it was going to be a new day and what she found was that although she was happy that she was now uh transitioned that her basic personality levels of happiness depression you know all these things remained exactly the same of course yeah well you say of course so i, just, I would never yeah. think it would change that's stuff that's that's stuff that you have to take care of that doesn't change because you change your word. The state right. of mind is in your brain. It's not on the beach in Miami. Right. So, but it's just, it is just interesting that we might all just have a certain baseline of what type of, you know, how much happiness we normally feel, how depressed you are, all these things. And then we will attach whatever bad feelings we have to whatever we can point to, which seems to be bad, using the wrong words. I feel, and then we, and lo and behold, realize, well, okay, it's good that we're saying they, but is it really going to make people that much happier? I, I suspect it won't, but I am all for the respect. Don't, I am actually all more for the respect. I just, just, you know, just kicking it around. That's all. I'm all for respect. I say they, even in private, I will refer, as you know, to somebody by the, if, if I don't misspeak, I was refer to somebody as the pronouns. I know that they would like me to refer to them by. Because respect is more about what you do no, actually no, no. when somebody's not looking than when they are looking. If no, you really you respect somebody, person. you do it their back, right? So I try to do that. No, do you know anybody in your personal life that is a they? Yes, I, I do. I do too. I do. I don't know any days. I don't know any days. I, I know a few days. I mean, people, you know, people who like I really 
adore and are really special people and were not days when I met them. So I think is like, you know, things change and other things become available. You know, people used to not have the option to live like that. Like you couldn't actually be yourself. And well, that's a different matter altogether than, than No, but I think yeah. it's part of it. You know, I know people who I've known since they were kids who, you know, grew up and became they and, you know, had top surgery and are non-binary and, you know, kids who are in their 20s. Now, so. other, other languages, I would mention other languages have gendered they. Uh, I don't know how they deal with the, the, that. Like, no, you know, no, no, other, no other culture besides our supposedly horrible, bigoted, racist, sexist, transphobic Western culture has ever even attempted to try to change its language to accommodate uh, these types of things. You know, it's one of the, it's kind of one of the things that bothers me is that the more, the more we, the more we drill down and double the, the uh, resolution of our microscope and, and clean up new things that we never even knew existed and, do the right thing, the more we seem to be down on ourselves and think that we're so horrible, as opposed to being quite proud of ourselves as a culture. You know, we're, I mean, we have a lot to be proud of, you know. Anyway, I, we're not so evil. Oh, Patrick Sharkey staying out of politeness or because he's interested? No, he can't, don't, don't, do. he's, listen, do you, know, do you know how cynically somebody could use anything he said and you know, they could take out of context? I, I well, that, that's true, but it's also the, you know these are these are tough issues, and I, I I do think like you know even for our students we get a list of names which are their registered names, but we have to go through this process first to make sure that we refer to people by the names that they want to be referred to rather than just the and and so you know I I do think it's important because you know the like. You want it to be about the student and and what makes that person uh, feel like a full person in the school setting or in the class or wherever they might be, um, as opposed to about me. You know, like I don't give a shit. You know, it, like it, it, I just I just want to make that student more comfortable. It doesn't matter. It's not a burden at all for me to change the pronouns that I use, even if it, you know it takes some work to try and figure out what the right uh, word is. And Latinx is a great example of that where I think you're right. Like, you know, that's like this very progressive elitist idea and almost no one likes it, you know, but, but it's become common in academic writing to write Latinx. And you can get in uh, trouble. Yeah. yeah. Can, can, can I approach this from a different thing? I know we got to go, but it's really interesting. So this, I want to just get the quote right. So this, um, occurred to me yesterday, I was having an argument about Israel with a guy, and we're talking about 1948, and at some point I, this is, I said, you know, but that's, that's 1948, like, you know, this, you know, moving up, and he said, well, to, to, to many people, it feels like just yesterday, and um, I said to him that, well, you know, anything can feel like just yesterday if they're, if the mind makes it so, so like to the Tuskegee experiment, feels like just yesterday to black people who didn't want to take the vaccine, even though it was in the 1930s. 1619, slavery is, people are learning to feel like that was just yesterday. And, and much of this is simply 
I got the quote because it's a famous Shakespeare quote. Nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. It's like, you know, like Coleman Hughes, our friend, said something that I never forgot. He says, you know, people are more concerned about slavery in the 1700s than they are about slavery going on today in, in Africa. You know, what, they, they literally will be more furious, more emotional about a story that happened 300 years ago then they will react to a story that what's going on in Mauritania now. So, so much of this is just the ability to download a programming that includes how you're supposed to react, how offended you should be, how you should feel about it. And then you, you spit that out. And if, if you're taught that using the wrong pronoun is quite offensive, you will react viscerally, truthfully, very, very offended. And, you know, this is a, this is a impediment to human progress. This is what we talk about, like blackface, for instance. Blackface was just yesterday. So you have a situation now where you have young kids who love a black hero and they want to dress up as their black hero for Halloween. But because we're literally imprisoned by the just yesterday of the past, we can't allow ourselves to become a, what would certainly be a healthy culture, which is allowing children of all colors to idolize heroes of all colors and dress up like them as Halloween, right? But it's just yesterday. Blackface minstrel shows were just yesterday. So this is just, I hope, I hope I'm not coming across the wrong way. It's interesting to me. It's a psychological thing that deserves, I think, some pushback sometimes. Like, okay, just because you feel it and just because it happened, you know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have to be your truth. That's kind of like what other, your truth. It doesn't have to be the end of the end of the, the lived experience. That's the yeah. And, and, and so I, I won't, I'm not saying about the, they, I'm just, it made me think of that. Like anything that happened in history can literally cause somebody. Speaking of history, this is a good segue. Speaking of history, I'm looking at Patrick Sharkey's Wikipedia page. It says he was born circa 1977. What are you, Julius Caesar? <laughs> I don't know who put that page together. Um, yes, yeah, so I was actually born exactly in 1977. All right. Well, I, I don't expect it, but I don't necessarily know how. And by the way, I did not mean to say the Holocaust was not just yesterday, Danny. Of course, it was just yesterday, Danny. Never forget. All right. Um, uh, I guess that's it. That was a, it's a long show. I think it was a pretty good show, actually. Had a little bit of everything, a little bit of something for everybody. And, and Thank you guys for having me on. It was fun. Thank you. Do you, you want to come down Friday night? Um, well, you think about it and an email. Yeah, let me, let me figure out what we're doing. Okay. Thank you, though. That'd be great. What'd you say, Periel? I'd like you to meet, I'd like you to meet my friend Coleman because, you know, he's, he writes a lot about uh, crime and stuff like that. Coleman Hughes. And um, I think he would... I think be very happy to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, every time I go there, you know, even my friends who are not into comedy, I always tell them, you know, go in the, to the cellar and, and I guarantee you'll, you'll have a, uh, just an incredible time. It, it's just a different place it, it, you guys, you guys, yeah, you do something there. That's different. Friday night, I'll be there, by the way, let me just look at the schedule. If I may very briefly, to see what you might be in for should you come to my show on Friday night. Uh, hold on a second. My show on Friday night. One second. Please hold. Listen. Okay, so the 515 show, that's too early. You don't want to come to that. Much too early. But the uh, 
Mm. It's 6 p.m. show. It's also early, but it's Eagle, it's Ed, Ed Watson, Judy Gold, Dan Adam, and Jackie Fabulous. Look, besides me, it's kind of a... It's kind of a... But we're early, Dan. If, if Patrick comes down later, we'll, we'll just put you on for another spot. I'm looking at these lineups. I got to tell you, Noam, without me on the show... <laughs> You know, I'm not too impressed. No, I'm kidding. All right. We must know. I just connected <laughs> you two on email, Patrick and Noam. So you can... Podcast at ComedyCellar.com for questions, comments, suggestions. And um, also, by the way, I, I sent Dara, you know, you, you asked, uh, you, you hired um, Gilbert Garfield to do a cameo for you. And I asked Dara if, if he had any idea who you were. And, and she said, probably not. Thanks, Yeah, she wrote me back. All right, I gotta go. But it, no, it was great. It was actually better than he didn't know who I was. It made it funnier. Maybe you shouldn't do it till last minute. All right, uh, it's, everybody. It's, podcast at comedycelly dot com. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Bye, Patrick. Thanks.